Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Rashika Pedras. Originally from Sri Lanka, Rashika grew up with her mother and three sisters in Texas. She grew up learning how to balance her Sri Lankan heritage and cultural expectations with her American sensibilities and upbringing and proudly owns both identities. She attended the University of Texas at Austin where she studied anthropology and pre-medical studies. Rashika believes proudly embracing both identities has contributed to the way she goes about trying to make a positive difference in the world. She did her first tour of duty at the Human Rights Campaign as the Development Coordinator. She worked on fundraising and community outreach projects. The Human Rights Campaign represents a grassroots force of more than 1.5 million members and supporters nationwide. It's the largest national LGBTQ civil rights organization. In 2016, she joined the Peace Corps. Established in 1961, the Peace Corps was established to promote world peace and friendship. Rashika served as a community health volunteer in Ethiopia. During service with the Peace Corps, her work focused on maternal and child health, HIV prevention, girls empowerment, and youth development. After leaving the Peace Corps, Rashika rejoined the Human Rights Campaign this time as a volunteer leadership organizer with the HRC Rising program, their largest grassroots expansion that focuses on accelerating progress and supporting pro-equality candidates and initiatives. Rashika believes working at HRC, she is part of a community that celebrates her intersectional perspective as a woman of color and an immigrant and it empowers her to be a change agent to challenge stigmas, support other LGBTQ Asian Americans, and push the fight for equality forward. Ashika, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Well, you know, um, we met, and then it was funny, um, HR, I was involved with HRC. HRC was having something. I planned to be there, and, like, you reached out to me, and when I got there, it was like, hi, you know, and, and it's like <laughs> an immediate, like, we clicked, and it's like we've known each other, like, forever. And yeah. I, it was also great to see because having been involved with HRC a long time ago, to see your face, a different face, you know, mm-hmm. um, a brown face, you know, but not, you know, brown as in African-American or Latino, but here you are from Sri Lanka. 
how, mm-hmm. okay, you grew up in, in Texas. What was that journey coming from Sri Lanka to Texas? Um, so we came, my family um, moved from Sri Lanka to Texas when I was a baby. And so um, I grew up um, with my three sisters and my mom and my dad. Um, and when I was about 10, my, um, my dad left. And so I was raised by, we were raised by um, my mom. And, um, you know, she, she raised us um, with her, you know, Sri Lankan um, sensibilities. It was, you know, we learned Sri Lankan culture and Sri Lankan traditions. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we were growing up as Americans. And so, um, you know, we kind of learned how to balance those values and take the best out of both cultures. Um, and my mom, you know, was um, wonderful at um, creating this, this understanding that we don't have to choose between both cultures, that I am both uh, Sri Lankan and American. Um, and so I was very lucky to grow up with um, such a progressive mother um, who really encouraged us um, to take the best out of both worlds. You know, I mean, and that's something, too, like you said, that is also something that's not uniquely American but is really strongly American. The single mm-hmm. parent, particularly the single mother, raising her daughters, putting it in there. How did that balance with, you know, I'm sure that you had a community around it, but how did that, that balance with them? Did they sort of like, like, why are you doing it this way? Or, or mm-hmm. were the messages like, you know, your daughters aren't going to want to grow up and get married, you know. I mean, which, you know, yeah. you often hear, like, you know, two-parent family is supposed to be all that great. And I know that that's an American, another American bias where they, they always right. want to say that the two-family, two-parent family is always better for the kids. But not only that, but you have a different culture that might be looking mm-hmm. at it that way. How did your yeah. mom juggle that? And what did you learn watching how she walked that walk between the two worlds? Well, my mom has always kind of um, marched the beat of her own drum. And I think, um, you know, even when she was living in Sri Lanka, she was very, um, very progressive and very independent. And um, there, there was pushback when, um, when my dad left um, for Sri Lanka and left our family. And um, we decided to stay here to continue our, our education. And um, for my mom, you know, it was difficult because she had family and friends who um, weren't all that happy that, you know, she as a wife didn't follow her husband and bring her children. Um, but for my mom, her children were her uh, first priority, and our, our mm-hmm. well-being and our education was her first priority. Um, and so, you know, I think we've all learned to be so strong and independent from my mom um, because she was able to figure out, you know, what are her uh, top priorities and um, what is the most important thing for her family, staying together and, um, and becoming educated because she knows that, especially as women, um, knowledge is really power, um, and that's mm-hmm. really how you build a life for yourself. Um, so, as, you know, as much as she kind of endured that criticism, um, she's never looked back um, at the decision she made to, to stay put with us here um, and support us in, in our um, education and development. 
Um, and for me, that's been something that was extremely empowering. Um, and, you know, uh, those are values that I carry with me today. Well, you know, I mean, I hear that story and I go like, damn, your mom was a rock star. You know, and <laughs> I know, you. but but at one point, you know, did you ever go through that, 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 that phase, you know, that, that, that tumultuous teen phase where it was like, Mom, you know, why do I have to? Why are you pushing me so much towards education? Let me, I just want to do my thing. Was she really strict about, you know, you're going to get an education. You have to do that or impounding that message into your head about this is your pathway. Mm-hmm. I think it was the way she raised us from the time we were little, it was always a given. No matter, mm-hmm. no matter how it happens, we're going to go to college. Um, and the one thing that she told us growing up was, you can do whatever you like as a career, but just make sure that when you, um, you know, as you grow older, you're helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was her one thing, was that whatever we do when we're older, we have to make time um, to either volunteer or somehow contribute to our community. Um, I went through a little bit, I wouldn't say a rebellious phase, but I think um, when it comes to religion and spirituality, there, was, there were some times when I was growing up where, you know, I kind of stepped back and said, why do I believe what I believe? Um, and, you know, um, is this something, you know, is the religion I was born into, is that something that I'm, um, that I still connect with? Um, and so I think in that way, when it comes to that part of my culture um, and religion, that's kind of, you know, I, I, um, I had to really think about it and explore, um, you know, why, uh, why I followed these beliefs. And my mom was um, very supportive. Um, I think, you know, for any parent, I think it's a little scary when your children kind of, um, you know, uh, don't always adhere to your traditions, um, but she was very um, supportive of me looking into other religions, looking into um, spirituality, and figuring that path for myself. Mm-hmm. How angry do you get during, you know, these times where we're at and you hear people talk about immigrants and knowing how hard your mother worked how committed she was to family. And even though, you know, they might be talking about another culture. They might be talking people coming from the Middle East. They could be talking about people coming from Central and South America. But does that make your blood boil, knowing mm-hmm. what your family went through when you hear these comments? Mm. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, I think it's hurtful. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it really is, um, ignorance. I think people stay in their comfort zones and stay in their bubbles, and sometimes they don't always consider people who, you know, on surface level seems different to them, um, but we're actually so similar. I mean, uh, you know, my family, we were extremely family-oriented, very um, spiritual people. Um, we were const- all of my sisters and I were constantly volunteering, um, finding ways to support the community. And that's something, those were values that my, my mother passed on to me from our culture, from our Sri Lankan culture. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it saddens me that immigrants are often vilified, um, you know, especially in this, this political climate. Um, when in reality, there's so much that we have in common. And I think there's more that we have in common than we have 
um, you know, different. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, people who um, took the time to get past their fear of, the, of um, differences and really got to, um, you know, go out of their comfort zone and meet people um, who have given up a lot to come to this country, you know, giving up your culture, your networks, your family sometimes, um, and, you know, putting aside your, your mother tongue, um, your um, culture, and coming to this country and uh, building a new life, you know, that's, it's extremely challenging. And, um, you know, the immigrants who come to this country, not only do they... Um, you know, work hard to, to build their own life, but they contribute so much um, to our to the communities. Um, and so, I, I it it makes me angry, and it also makes me extremely sad because I feel like there's so much um, there's so much that isn't being um, spoken about when it comes to the contributions of immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, do you find you know, especially in this has it given you opportunities to want to tell your story? I mean, you know, and you show up and, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, people want to assume, you know, they look and, mm-hmm. oh, and she or she's working particularly, you're working for HRC, you're doing this, and they assume that everything is just, a, but you really do have, like I said, there's part of it that you could take out where your mother came from, you know, mm-hmm. and where you came from, and, and, and put, you know, another family in there with the, the mother trying to encourage her daughters to have a better life and to do that, mm-hmm. which is also another really amazing story. And it is, like you said, it's something that people got to know you. I mean, it, it's really very familiar with everyone. But sometimes do you have to like sort of out yourself as saying, hey, wait a minute, I came from a single parent home and my mother mm-hmm. pushed us for education? Yeah, I, um, you know, and I think, you know, I grew up in a suburb in te- of, of Houston um, in Texas, and I um, was often the odd person out, especially in the beginning. Um, I think as I got older, our community got more diverse. But in the very beginning, um, you know, there, there weren't a whole lot of people like our family um, in mm-hmm. the region that we were living. And so I constantly got used to you know, I have to bridge the divide. I'm the, I have to be outgoing. I have to um, reach across and meet people and show people who I am. And so I've kind of grown up having to do that, and I, and I feel my sisters probably feel the same way. Um, and, um, yes, even in my work, I'm, you know, uh, it, it's, I think, a benefit that I'm extroverted. <laughs> but I, uh-huh. um, I do, you know, share who I am with the people I meet, um, not only to, to show that, you know, my life and background is as multidimensional as anybody else's, um, but to also um, reach out to people who maybe have similar backgrounds but have never felt um, empowered to share that um, with others. Um, uh-huh. So, um, you know, coming from a single-parent household as a child, that can be, um, difficult and challenging, um, but that was something I, I was always proud of my mother for doing all she did, and I was very open about that growing up, um, but I also recognize that there are a lot of children who grew up in single-parent households, and because that's still not seen as a norm in American culture, we're often kind of, um, you know, in the shadows, um, and so when I was growing up, you know, I was always thought other 
children who are going through similar experiences. And I feel like I do that in my work as well, um, as whether it's my identity as an Asian woman or an immigrant um, or, you know, a child of a single parent household. So, okay, I can sort of see a thread with anthropology through all the things that you do, <laughs> but what happened to the pre-med? <laughs> um, I... I think I was pre-med from like age five. I mean, I just knew I wanted to be a doctor. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, was my idol. Um, and um, that, you know, that was what I wanted to do was help people, you know. And um, as I, I think in high school, I got more interested in, um, in politics. Those, that was during the Bush years. Um, and more interested in politics and what was going on in our country and going on abroad. And I think in college I fell in love with anthropology and really, um, really interested in human rights. And um, I was pre-med all, you know, I finished all my prereqs. And when it was time to sign up for the MCAT, I thought, you know, I, I'm passionate about public health, but it's not what I want to do as a career. I really, what I really want to do is go into the human rights field. Um, and it was a big deal to let go of, you know, aspirations going to medical school. But um, my family was very supportive. Um, and, you know, I took an extra year in college just to take all the classes that I hadn't had time to take while pre-med um, and really fed my love for, you know, anthropology and women's rights and sociology. Um, so that was, you know, a great opportunity that I had. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't blame you. I crushed on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, too. You know? I mean, it was just like something about it, you know. And, you know, uh, what's this, Dr. Quinn? Yes. But, you know, you know, now I know you, you've been, uh, you're doing your second tour at the Human Rights Campaign. But in between, you mm -hmm. went to Ethiopia. You joined the Peace yeah. Corps. And I'm going to tell you. You know, back in, you know, you know, the Peace Corps back in the 60s, and usually if you think about, if you say something about the Peace Corps, people sort of look at, oh, is it still around? Or they think, you know, oh, hippies, you know. Right. You know what, what drew you to the Peace Corps? And what are, talk about Ethiopia, how it, and I know it, it still has a place in your heart, but what yes. drew you to the Peace Corps and how did you end up in Ethiopia? Hmm. Well, I think um, I always had a passion for travel. Um, and, you know, growing up, my, um, again, my mom, like, whatever extra money she had was spent on buying us books about different countries and atlases and old Nat Geo uh, magazines, and she wanted us to explore the world, you know. And so when I grew up, um, I was really interested in Doctors Without Borders. If I had gone into uh -huh. medicine, that was something I really wanted to do. And when I put medicine aside, um, my, you know, I, I thought, oh, Peace Corps is the perfect opportunity to use some of the skills that I've developed, um, but also explore, you know, and, and immerse myself in a different culture and language and learn, you know, how other people in the world live. Um, and so that's kind of what drew me to Peace Corps, just like this lifelong love of, of uh, travel and this desire to use my skills to benefit uh, communities. Um, and so when I was there, I, I um, applied during my first uh, tour at HRC, and, um, you know, everyone, all my coworkers were extremely supportive. And 
um, I joined as a community health volunteer. So I focused on, um, as you mentioned before, HIV prevention education, maternal and child health, um, girls empowerment. And, um, you know, the first three months of Peace Corps service is, the technical and language training, and the cultural integration. And then they put you in a rural site for two years, and you're kind of, you're not completely on your own, but as, you know, you kind of are. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was in a rural site um, called Bash, which is in the Amhara region of Ethiopia, in the highlands. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was very cold and um, beautiful scenery, and the people um, were quite reserved at first. I think for the first five weeks, only my coworkers talked to me at the local health center um, because I was the first foreigner anyone had ever met um, and the first American anyone had ever uh-huh. met. So um, I think, you know, you know, I came out of nowhere with the Peace Corps and I, um, you know, spoke broken Amharic <laughs> And I think people were wondering, who is this girl who says she's American? You know, I'm obviously not a white woman, um, Uh who I think they were expecting a woman from America. They were expecting a a white person. So um, I think that was different as well. Um, But that was a wonderful opportunity to, um, you know, explain kind of the rich diversity of America that, you know, um, people often come from different places um, you know, different countries and then come to America. Um, and I had some lovely conversations with um, my community members about, um, you know, the diasporas in America and the uh, immigrant communities in America. And um, so that, that was a, a really great um, teaching moment. Um, did, but, did you have that moment when, when you saw they were looking at you? What's that look like? You're not the American yeah. where, where you were, we were expecting, you know. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, your life had kind of prepared you for it because like you were saying that often you were the only person who looked like you in your community. Right. So right. You, were, you were kind of prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I really was, um, and I think – you know, during my time in Ethiopia is when I really fully embraced my Sri Lankanness and my Americanness. Um, I think that was something I was always brought up with, but growing up in Texas, I was always seen as, um, you know, despite how diverse Texas is, oftentimes when you're, um, when you're uh, an immigrant, you're not seen fully as fully American. Um, uh-huh. And so... I always had to defend that part of myself um, in Texas and in Ethiopia. Um, you know, for whatever reason, it finally clicked with me that both cultures are mine. Um, uh-huh. And um, so it, it was great. Like, I celebrated um, American New Year with my health center, and I cooked them all Sri Lankan food because in my family, that's how we celebrate New Year's is um, – cooking Sri Lankan food and doing, you know, doing those traditions. So um, it was a great, um, it was a great experience to, to teach people about how diverse America is. And, um, and the fact that, you know, we're free to practice um, as many cultures as, um, you know, that make up our identity. You know, that's really an interesting thing because, 
you wonder how many people don't embrace or, or, or get to the point you recognize about being that American part, especially mm-hmm. if you're not white American, because, you know, yeah. it's like our country, and, and people also have preconceived notions about that, but to be able to embrace that and to sort of like, no, I'm, I'm both, and being American means that you can do both. But did yeah. you have to, did you find that there were things about being an American did they ask you hard questions, like, 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 were you accepted, or how come we don't see more people like you? Did, were there things that made you really think about America as you explained to them the contradictions of not only this freedom to embrace everything, but being excluded? Yeah. Yeah, I, um, you know, we talked about um, – we had very deep conversations. I think even with my, my landlady, with my broken Amharic and her limited English, we were able to have some really deep conversations about identity in America. And um, I think, you know, Ethiopia is a place where they have over 80 different languages and different ethnic groups. And so it's a very diverse country as well. Um, and at the time, they were having some political, um, ethnic um, conflicts. And so... Um, you know, that was kind of always um, a topic of conversation between me and my landlady, you know, when we were talking about current issues. And so I would talk about the U.S. and, um, you know, how there are people from all over the um, world. But I think especially when Trump um, came into power, um, you know, they would watch on BBC or CNN News and see that immigrants weren't treated with respect. And I was surprised at how many, um, especially Muslim Ethiopian people, would come up to me and say, you know, I wanted to move to the U.S., but I don't think I'd be accepted there. Um, mm. Extremely sad. You know, I think Peace Corps is all about um, bridging, you know, divides and sharing cultures. And to hear someone saying, I don't think I'd be welcome in your country, it's extremely um, saddening. Um, and so there were a lot of people, you know, I think, and that's probably the case along, you know, around the world is that the, America is seen as this, you know, beacon of hope and this place of opportunity. Um, and where, you know, more and more, I think people are um, thinking, I wouldn't be able to make a life there for myself. Um, and I think the other, the other question I kept getting was, if, you know, if, um, Trump is doing all of this, the Trump administration is doing all this horrible stuff. How did he get elected? Which was a whole nother conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, you went, but when you were there also, you were working with some really hard things like um, mm-hmm. maternal and child health and HIV mm-hmm. prevention. And, and we know we've heard stories about girls and in Africa and education and being empowered and even young people, for so many reasons, because of conflict, because of poverty, not making it. So at some point in time, how did you pivot the conversation or say to them, like, you know, this is America, this is what I've learned, but let, how do we work together to make here and that you can have some of the same things here? And how did particularly with women and girls 
your background where you were able to tell them about coming from that background with a single parent or a mother who had talked about education and how education was the key to so much. How did you take those lessons and talk to them about their space? You know, I, um, that's a really good question. I think um, the girls and women, especially in the rural regions, I can't speak as much to the cities, but in the rural areas, um, they are very strong, tough people, um, and they, they go through a lot and they witness a lot. Um, you know, other than um, issues of poverty and lack of resources, um, there's also issues of, um, you know, a child, forced child marriage, which is illegal in Ethiopia, um, female genital mutilation, again, illegal in Ethiopia, but it still happens in these rural areas, um, you know, and, and issues that we um, experience in the U.S., um, sexual harassment and assault, domestic abuse, um, discrimination, gender discrimination. Um, and so, you know, with, with those issues, it's, um, it was easier for me to connect with them because those are issues that we have in the U.S. When it came to issues of, you know, early childhood marriage um, or FGM, those were much more difficult issues to, to speak about. Um, but I think when I approached my work, and I, and I think it's the same for a lot of Peace Corps volunteers, is starting with this idea of everyone is equal, um, and so I had, for example, I had a girls empowerment club at the local high school um, with over 68 stu- female students. Um, and we talked about, you know, what are, what is gender? What are gender roles? What are gender norms? Can they change? Um, what are the expectations placed on you as a girl, as a young woman? Um, and, you know, when we start there, um, and when you're, when you talk about, seeing girls and boys, all of everyone as human beings um, who are um, deserving of love and equal opportunity, um, then you can, then I could start approaching these, these tougher subjects, um, these tougher human rights issues, um, such as early childhood marriage. But it's, it's difficult because you know, you talk about personal agency and personal power as a young woman, um, and the reality is that a lot of these women, um, their agency is limited by their um, their infrastructure and their the culture they live in. Um, but I was, you know, I, I was really amazed by um, the commitment a lot of these. Um, students, especially the girls, had to education. Um, sometimes these girls are, um, and boys, but, you know, the, the female students would have to be a shepherdess. You know, they're taking care of mm-hmm. their livestock. Then they're taking care of their younger siblings. They're helping their mother with the laundry and the cooking. And then they make time for studies. Um, so it was really inspiring seeing these girls who are, um, you know, burdened with a lot of a lot of tasks and a lot of responsibilities and who are so passionate about um, coming to school and learning and making the most of the opportunities that they're afforded. Um, So that was really amazing. Uh So what was 
you know, we know what you, you went there to do. What did you come away from that changed you when you left Ethiopia and came back? And that then you also looked at and, said, and, and were able to look in your community and maybe apply some of these lessons too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think I changed quite a bit, and I um, I think for me um, it was wonderful to be in this community where um, everyone knew each other, everyone made time for each other, um, and I think that was something that I took away was the personal connections um, because in um, you know especially in the site that I was. In, and I, I think this is the case for a lot of Ethiopian culture. It's, it's very much about um, taking time to be with one another, um, taking time to be with your family, taking time to socialize with your friends and your coworkers. Um, so I think in, in that sense, you know, I, um, I realized how much in American life we're constantly working. Um, mm. And work is in the forefront, and then spending time with our friends and family is kind of like something extra that we get to do if we have time. In Ethiopia, it's work is work, but at the end of the day, your life is about the people um, you surround yourself with and your family and your friends. So I think that was something beautiful that I really took away, um, just this recommitment to the people in my life. Um, I think seeing um, the resilience of especially the women and girls um, that I, I came into contact with and that I lived with and worked with for two years, um, you know, th- they go through so much. Um, uh, you know, on top of not having the conveniences of city life um, and uh-huh. living in a you know, rural environment with low, re- low um, you know, low-resourced environment, there are so many social barriers social challenges, um, and seeing these women who are so resilient, who are going through some really difficult things and still at the end of the day are, um, you know, loving on their children and talking to their friends and somehow have time to make, um, you know, food for the sick neighbor down the street. Um, you know, seeing, seeing the women... Um, live their life with such grace um, was just really inspiring. Um, And, you know, I think it really put a lot of things in perspective for me um, as far as, you know, what's important in life um, and what, you know, what I need to focus on personally and what I'd like to focus on um, in my career and in my community engagement. Okay. Well, we're going to take our first break here, and when we come back, we're going to bring you back to the to the U.S. of A. <laughs> and talk about your time with that with Human Rights Campaign. But um, okay. we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. 
For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back to Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Ashika Pedras. She works with the Human Rights Campaign, but she was talking about her time in Ethiopia and working with women. And, you know, I totally understand what you mean because, you know, we always talk about the strength of women. And I know once I was in South America and we went to, you know, it was a village. But the resilience, mm-hmm. the strength, like you said, you know, they didn't have you know, well, oh, it's like, oh, we couldn't do this, you know. I just <laughs> couldn't handle it. But when you saw, you know, that not only taking care of the children, uh, making the time to try to learn, that strength, that resilience, it was something that really made you think about, you know, what mattered, what was mm-hmm. family, you know, what were you doing to build that sense of a community? Because I know I've been in one village, and I really felt – more of a community for people in a, a place where people had less than what any of us have here. And mm-hmm. I came back and it made me relook at, at things here. When you hit the ground and you came back, were you still sort of like looking for something like that or looking for a place where you could help build community? Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think um, so during my service, um, I, the the U.S. presidential election happened, um, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, like many, I was devastated by the outcome um, and just in shock. And um, I was, you know, I I was committed to my service, but at the same time, thinking, how am I over here when so much is going on back home? Um, and so when I came home, you know, you know, you kind of go through this culture shock and this readjustment to American life. Um, and I started looking at, um, st- started looking for jobs, um, about two months after I came back, um, and jobs that were, um, social justice oriented and would make me feel like I was part of the resistance, resisting mm. this, this hatred towards, uh, that this administration has towards LGBTQ people and immigrants and women and, um, I was very lucky because I was um, extremely close to my coworkers back at um, the Human Rights Campaign um, and very close to my boss, who's um, the senior VP of uh, development and membership. And she was always kind of like um, this mentor to me throughout my Peace Corps service. We kept in touch whenever I had network. And, um, you know, she'd check on me and see how I was doing, and I would check on her and... um, she reached out to me and told me about the um, Human Rights Campaign uh, Rising program, this large grassroots expansion they were doing, and she said, you know, I think you'd be great for it. You should, um, you, you know, you should look at this volunteer leadership organizer position and see whether it's something you'd want to do. And I felt, when I saw it, I thought it was the perfect fit because um, it's, you know, about community engagement and um, empowering people to... Um, 
to get involved, not just in the political process, but get involved in creating solutions for their communities, um, which is, you know, very reflective of the work that I was doing in Peace Corps. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, when I joined the HRC um, back in March, I was really excited to, um, to join in this, this different capacity. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I've been working in Michigan and, and Pennsylvania. Well, you know what? I mean, how great is it? Because often, okay, you've been there, you've been in fundraising, you've been in development, and it would have been very easy for someone to, to like sort of put you in that silo and to sort of see it. But you had mm-hmm. to have someone, like you said, not only did you have you worked with her, but you bet she'd been like a mentor, you'd stayed in touch. But to have someone recognize that that was where you were, but you mm-hmm. had where your heart was, seeing the the growth and development in you, and seeing you in a different capacity. Did Mm -hmm. you have, uh, you know, when you first heard about, you know, thought, did you think about going back to the HRC? Mm -hmm. And if this opportunity had come, you know, it just sort of worked out really good. But, you know, you've been in a totally different world, and was that that world Mm -hmm. closed to you? And then, But then it was like, wow, you know. One door shut, but another one opened. Right. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I left HR, the HRC to join the Peace Corps, I was the development coordinator, and um, something my, my boss, Kathy, um, had told me was, you know, you, you always have a home here. You know, you're more than uh-huh. the staff, you're your family. And, um, mm. and so I kept in touch with a lot of the people from HRC when I, um, when I left for Ethiopia. And um, this was just such a perfect match, this job. Um, I, um, I, I am very fortunate that she was able to see that I have these skill sets um, mm-hmm. in the Peace Corps um, and that, you know, those skill sets were needed for this kind of work. Um, so it was, um, it was just a really great match and I think um, really uses my skills that I developed while I was um, in the Peace Corps. You know, I think that a lot of people would probably be surprised when they heard you say that. But although mm-hmm. I will tell you that from my time, and I was just like in a volunteer capacity, I was on a steering committee and board of governors, but I made friendships with people that, you know, people I'm still in touch with. But I think that mm-hmm. many people would be surprised when you mm-hmm. say, especially when they go, well, HRC is the largest organization, but you said it was like, it wasn't just like, these were friendships. These, this was like you were part family. Mm-hmm. How in this, this behemoth of an organization, <laughs> and we were having dinner once where someone was saying, you know, oh, well, what did they call it? Oh, she said it was the human rights or campaign. <laughs> okay, and I mean, which, which, you know, but it is something that most people, if they think of HRC, they think mm-hmm. of white gay men. And to have someone who, with your passion and stuff, you're saying, like, this wasn't just like a job. These are like family. These are close friends who you stay in touch with. What is it that makes you, that, that's at the core that people don't see when they just look out and that, that they're missing? Mm-hmm. If they just look out that exterior and, and just sort of slap that on there and say, well, in the past it was it. What are they missing? I think, um, you know, first I think that the organization has um, grown a lot um, in the last 38 years. Um, I think 
it's a lot more diverse than people assume it is. Um, and both with our um, our internal staff and our um, our volunteer network. Um, but I think you know one thing that I see every day at work is are people who are so passionate about the work they do. I mean, people who, um, you know, to the detriment of their social lives, are constantly working for um, for LGBTQ rights, and we take the work very personally. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why our um, our friendships and our, our um, relationships within the organization are so strong. Um, you know, some of my most of my closest friends are at the Human Rights Campaign, um, and you know, when I when I uh, got my U.S. citizenship because I kept my um, I kept my Sri Lankan citizenship for a while, so it wasn't until um, you know I was about 23, 24 that I got my U.S. citizenship, and they threw a party for me. You know, when I uh-huh. um, yeah, when I left for the Peace Corps, uh-huh. they threw a party for me and they sent me care packages. And um, it's out of um, you know pure love and concern and support. And um, unfortunately, you know, because we're we're constantly working, we're constantly responding to um, you know the emergencies created by this administration. A lot of people don't. Um, see what goes on inside um, that building. And it's just, you know, people working together for a common goal, but they're also bringing their authentic selves. Um, And this work is just so personal. Um, And, uh, you know, there's so many people who are constantly, you know, at all hours of the night responding to members and supporters and volunteers and, um, you know, working on these projects, whether they're um, on the political side or on the foundation side. Um, so it really is, you know, um, work that we're living and breathing all the time. Now I'm going to put you on the spot here for a minute because you <laughs> told me something which I thought people needed to know because, okay. like I said, I have been involved with HRC and um, I have trans friends who said, well, you know, they threw the trans people under the bus. And... Mm. Earlier this year, there was an incident when someone higher up used a, the N-word, and they immediately were gone. And I asked you, and I said, okay, being a person of color, you know, and knowing the history, how did you feel and how was it handled internally? And you talked about that, and I'd like for you to share that with it because I think that many people think that, oh, well, you know, if you work for somebody, you have no say. But what really impressed me was that you and other staff members did have a say. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it was a really uh, unfortunate, um, really hurtful incident. And, um, you know, as it's known, HRC immediately did an investigation and they immediately, um, you know, responded to the incident. And... Um, I think what was important was we had a conversation um, about how all of us were affected. Um, the staff were really there to support each other. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's through our people of color ERG or, um, 
you know, our Connect Committee or our, um, you know, other spaces for um, discussion. Um, the staff has been um, very responsive to these types of issues. Um, we're a growing organization, and um, we have come a long way in 38 years, but we still mm -hmm. have some more work to do. And um, I think one thing I'm very proud of is that um, our organization takes the time to hear from our fellow staff members, not only about how they feel, but how they want to move the organization forward. And that's a co conversation that we're constantly having. Um, and you know, whether you're um, an assistant or a coordinator or your director or VP, um, we have avenues or spaces um, for us to have those discussions. And um, I know for me personally, um, I've always been very vocal about um, you know, how I feel the organization should be moving forward. And um, I'm very fortunate that I have um, coworkers and supervisors who are um, always listening and very receptive and want to work together to build these solutions. So, you know, you talk about um, that one of the things that you liked is that you thought that, that being here allowed you to bring all of you mm -hmm. and to be that change agent to yeah. challenge stigmas. And, you know, the fact that you are everywhere, you're not just, you know, in D.C. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems like every time I talk to you, you're on your way somewhere else, you know, uh, going to another city, working with people, you know, and, that, and that's important, working with communities, mm -hmm. that you are able to be a change agent and show that really, like I tell people, it ain't your daddy's HIC anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that it's another, gen, you know, it's like been generations of people who are coming up, and it's hopefully any organization is supposed to evolve as it goes along. When you go out and you're, how are, are people surprised to see that you're with HRC? Are they surprised to hear your background? And, and are you able to bring all these pieces in? Because you have a lot of things you can talk about that you can bring to the table. You can mm -hmm. talk that are hot-button issues now, immigration, family, um, you know, women. All the, I mean, you've got so many things that you can bring to to that and also say that there's a global perspective to all of this. Right. What's it like now when you hit the ground and you see people who are coming maybe reluctantly, maybe just out of curiosity to see, mm -hmm. you know, what what what's this girl talking about? You know? What's it like now to bring this new message? You know, I think um it's a really great opportunity for me, um, not just professionally but personally to make um, you know, to have these conversations with people and say, you know, these are all the ways in which our organization is moving forward. Come with us. Help us. If, if there are ways that we can improve our community outreach, if there are ways that we can improve our representation of the LGBTQ community, help us be a part of that solution. Let's build it together. Um, and I think, you know, in the past you know, and this is with any organization, there are blind spots. And as time goes by, there's a growing consciousness, and you become aware of your blind spots. 
And something I always ask when, people, when I meet with people is, um, in what way can we address the gaps in this community? Um, in what way can we work with existing organizations that have been doing this work locally for decades? How can we add capacity? Um, and I think the really cool thing about this, the large grassroots expansion, it's creating more opportunities for people to get involved um, in the beginning of, of all of this work. Um, you know, we can start building volunteer communities um, in places like Pittsburgh and Detroit and Milwaukee. Um, and that's a really exciting project because we have so much more knowledge and we have such a, um, a greater consciousness than we did years ago about how our LGBTQ and ally community needs to be represented and um, how our issues need to be addressed. And um, identifying who are the most vulnerable among us in this community and how can we support them. Um, so I think, you know, this, this expansion, this grassroots expansion called HRC Rising is coming at a very um, exciting time because I think there's this, especially with this administration and the amount of hate they're throwing everywhere, there's this growing consciousness. Um, and I, for one, I'm really excited to, to be a part of that and be a part of the resistance and be a part of um, building something stronger. Um, in a lot of the, the um, areas that uh, rising, the rising program is being implemented. Now, well, another one of your, of, of your intersectionalities that, that I wonder is like, because a lot of the places that you've uh, named are in the Midwest, in the North, mm -hmm. but you're a little Southern girl. You're a little Texan. <laughs> how, how, is, how, do, how is that? I mean, what, is there a cultural difference that you see? I mean, Forget Sri Lanka. I mean, from coming from Texas, and you're in Pittsburgh and Detroit. Is there a cultural yes. difference or a different way that you say, like, hmm, okay, let me, what am I going to pull out my bag of tricks now to sort of, like, get in there and find out what's going on? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I definitely drop more y'alls than other people do. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's definitely one cultural difference. Um, yeah, I think every, you know, I think the cool thing is every um, city has its own vibe. And, you know, I work a lot in um, Detroit and a lot in Pittsburgh. And um, both those cities have, like, a different kind of vibe. And I think that, you know, that culture is different. Even in Texas, you know, the different cities have, Austin has its, you know, keep Austin weird. And, um, you know, <laughs> San Antonio has this, like, very... Um, friendly, easy, breezy um, vibe. And Houston is very metropolitan, but it's also extremely cultured. And um, I think, you know, Detroit is just, people are very socially conscious. Um, and that's really exciting. And um, so I, I'm really excited to kind of tap into that, um, this environment. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's been really enjoyable for me is kind of seeing each city has its own little vibe. Um, so that, that's, that's really cool. So we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about HRC, the HRC Rising program. So we will be right back. 
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back with my Texan, my Sri Lankan by way of Texas, hit Ethiopia down in D.C. <laughs> front. <laughs> I mean, when you talk about bringing a lot to the table, I mean, I think you need a little side table for all that you bring with you. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but, but you know what? And it was funny that I didn't think about that Texas. So wait a minute. She's also from Texas. <laughs> um, uh, but so you're the volunteer leadership organizer mm-hmm. with the HRC Rising program. Mm-hmm. What is the program and what is your role? And tell us in depth about HRC Rising. And I know that you're going to be spending some time in Michigan as well mm-hmm. as, you know, that time in Philadelphia, although I think that the Detroit area is far cooler. But yeah. Um, but what is your role, and what is the program? Um, so the HRC Rising program is our la- largest uh, grassroots expansion, and we are um, doubling down our efforts in all of the communities that we uh, we were currently in. We have thirty two steering committees across the country. So in all 50 states, we're doing work, um, but we are focusing um, on six key states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada, um, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Arizona. And um, these are states where we have a lot of uh, pro-equality voters out there. And we also have a lot of pro-quality candidates running for office. And so HRC Rising is um, organizing and mobilizing our pro-equality voters to go out to the polls and elect people who will represent um, the LGBTQ population and fight for for their um, rights and their protections. Um, And so that's the overview of HRC Rising. Um, and my role, um, I have two other colleagues who um, have similar roles um, in, different, in the different key states. Um, my role in Pennsylvania and Michigan is to um, invite people to join as volunteers um, and get them involved in the phone banking efforts and the canvassing and the deep voter contact that our Michigan State team and our Pennsylvania State teams are doing, um, but then also build a longer-term um, steering committee or volunteer community um, in these areas. So in Pittsburgh and Detroit, we have a growing volunteer community um, that will um, lot, you know, have worked long past the midterms. Um, and getting those volunteers um, empowered to be leaders in our community and connect with other um, 
local organizations that are doing similar work in the area. Now, are you just, um, I know that you're, you're getting people involved, but are you looking at um, not only uh, voter registration, getting people out to vote, uh, mm-hmm. promoting uh, candidates, and just community engagement? What all, what are you encouraging people to do? Mm-hmm. Besides trying to say, hey, I'm a volunteer, you know, what, what do you really want them to feel motivated to get out there and do to make this difference? Well, I think right now um, our midterms are a huge priority. Um, and so getting involved with the Michigan State team, who is headed by Amrita Venkataraman, um, and we have um, operations in Detroit and uh, Grand Rapids and um, all over Michigan, and people can get involved um, by looking at our online trainings um, on hrc.org and learn how to phone bank with us and have deep, meaningful conversations with um, potential pro-quality voters. Um, and so that means you know, we, we train our volunteers on how to speak to people about what's at stake in these midterms and why people should get out to the polls. Um, so right now our, um, our priority is getting people signed up for phone banking and canvassing so we can go and encourage people um, to go vote for these pro-equality candidates. Um, and what do and you define as a pro-equality candidate? Because you're not saying, uh, you know, and I think that's important because you're not saying, oh, they have to be gay, they are LGBT. What, what do you define as a pro-equality candidate? And are you only looking at, I mean, what issues are you looking at that would define that? Um, so we are looking for, um, or people we, we describe as pro-equality uh, champions are people who have been consistently supportive of the LGBTQ community um, that recognizes um, our needs, um, whether it's you know, protections in the workplace, um, protections when it comes to accommodations, uh, protections when it comes to education, um, employment, um, when it comes to uh, hate crimes, when it comes to transgender care, um, and, um, you know, anti-bullying uh, initiatives. Um, and mm-hmm. so those are some of the big um, issues that uh, we are facing in Michigan. And the pro-quality candidates that we've endorsed are all people who um, are fighting for our rights and are, are um, willing to stand up against this um, really hateful administration and say, you know, enough's enough. Um, these are Americans' lives that you're playing with, and we're here to fight for them. Now, you know, criticisms that are, or the pushback that we got when we were fighting for marriage and often other, which I think, people who I would say were pro-equality people, but they'd often say, well, you know, you guys are all out here about wanting us to support you for marriage, but where are you on our issues? And when I'm thinking like, you know, like mm-hmm. our women, women's rights, pro-choice, mm-hmm. um, like you've mentioned some things already and some things that are in your background, immigration, all of these things, do you try to not only show that, well, look at you, I mean, you know, you hit mm-hmm. all, you hit so many of those things, and you can stand mm-hmm. in that space for everyone. 
And as an HRC volunteer, you can stand in that space for that. But are you finding ways to build those bridges to places where maybe we haven't, we, we probably have already been there, but we weren't mm-hmm. visibly there? Are you trying to find mm-hmm. to build that bridges and help build opportunities or encourage volunteers? Like maybe you stood for, um, you were pro-choice, but maybe you just sort of said, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm there. I'm not going to say I'm queer in here. So are you right. trying to help volunteers also find that voice? Oh, definitely. I think, um, you know, coalition building is a, a big part of our work. Um, and HRC, you know, um, across the country has been um, working with our coalition partners. You know, we, um, we have relationships with the ACLU, NAACP, Planned Parenthood, um, and we're in a lot of these um, spaces because LGBTQ people are women and are immigrants. Um, we are people of color who, um, you know, experience discrimination. And so um, it's important for us as an organization to stand up with all of these vulnerable communities and say, we are one and we're here with you. Um, I think on the ground, um, you know, with our, with our volunteer communities, um, we, you know, have leadership trainings where we have the Leadership Institute um, just about a month ago um, where we have these discussions with our volunteers who, um, who come to this institute. And um, we train them on how to have, um, you know, conversations with, um, with, our, with our coalition partners and how to, um, you know, extend a hand to other vulnerable communities um, that are being affected by, um, you know, the hateful policies of this administration. So that's, that's something that's very central to our work um, and that we've been very vocal about, um, you know, whether it's racial equity or um, women's uh, reproductive rights. Um, or immigration or the, um, the anti-Muslim sentiments um, that this administration has been pushing. Um, so, yeah, th- those, are all, um, those are all issues that HRC is proud to, um, to confront and stand with our community partners. Mm-hmm. So. So, um, so what are you going? Yeah, I know that you said that you are going to be spending building up to these midterm elections, and we know that our work mm-hmm. has to go on beyond the midterm elections. But right. where, what communities are you focusing on, and how are you doing? I mean, what is your your biggest thing? I mean, I know a voter registration for November in Michigan, mm-hmm. I believe, is the ninth. You have to be registered to vote. Hopefully, yes. everyone is out there. Um, I know, but that's really important. Um, how do you see as far as getting people out to the polls? Because, I mean, that has unfortunately been the sad thing, that when you get to the midterm elections, that people don't come out and vote. How mm-hmm. do you have a strategy for that? Yes. Um, we, you know, we are supporting, um, you know, our, our endorsed candidates campaigns, um, and we're doing the phone banking and canvassing, but we're, um, we are going to be extremely engaged, especially come um, uh, get out the vote week, um, right before the election, um, knocking on doors, um, calling people, letting them know that 
you know, this is not a midterm that we can afford to sit out. Um, and so our uh, Michigan State team, again, who's, who's um, headed by our state director, Amritha, um, is engaging um, volunteers in this voter, these voter mobilization efforts. Mm -hmm. And what is your game plan for after, because, you know, um, I don't even remember what year it was, when we had a, we got a lot of people engaged when we had a marriage amendment um, here in Michigan, which went down, mm -hmm. uh, it was defeated. But afterwards, it was like, how do you, it was, how do you keep people engaged? Because I know that I, I always remember like the night of the vote. And, you know, and many of us, we were, I mean, we were just sort of feeling crushed. And Jeff Montgomery, who has, who died like a, a couple of years ago, and he, but he was the head of the Triangle Foundation. And mm -hmm. what he said was it was important that we had a message to go out to keep going because it was just mm -hmm. like the race was still going long term. We have important midterm elections. And, you know, and I hear people both ways, some people who are just like, so energized to be mm -hmm. a part of it. And other people are going, to, are going like, well, you know, it's not going to matter anyhow. I'll wait till 2020. How do we keep that going? I mean, build upon the anger that I'm hoping that every woman is feeling after watching right. these hearings, uh, these Senate Judiciary Committees, and, and seeing all the, uh, the just madness that has come out of this administration but how do we make sure that those thousands of people, particularly women, but mm -hmm. um, who showed up at, the, at both women's marches in, uh, last year, this year, that are talking all these anger, the ones who wanted to change their uh, Facebook profile to a black box or whatever, mm -hmm. where everybody, how do we keep that going? And how do we keep them going to go like, we have to push on beyond the midterms and make sure that people understand what it means because mm -hmm. I think that some people think like oh well if this happens they don't mean me but it does mean you and all mm -hmm. your different intersectionalities how do we how do we do that you know I think um, the I think after we convey how important these midterms are and after the midterms are over long-term community engagement is um, is so vital um, to the health of our communities. Um, and I think, you know, getting engaged in volunteering is um, not just a way to, um, you know, serve your community, but it's a way to empower yourself. Um, I know for me personally, it was, you know, this work is an outlet for me for all of my frustration with this administration mm -hmm. and for all of the, the um, challenges coming our way. Um, this is this is how I feel um, empowered. This is how I use my voice. And I think we have to remind people that yes, voting is um, one of the best ways you can use your voice. But the community um, will benefit from hearing your voice as well. And so whether it's getting engaged um, in local service projects or getting engaged with the HRC volunteer community, um, you know, spending a little bit of your spare time um, trying to improve, um, you know, the, the state of your community, uh, making sure that 
the most vulnerable people in our community are being supported and elevated. Um, I think there's a lot of that work um, still ahead of us. I don't think it stops with the midterms. And, you know, I think that if we build on this momentum, come 2020, we are going to be such a powerful force. Um, so I think that, you know, really letting people know that the work doesn't just stop after you fill out your ballot. You know, mm-hmm. that's a really important step. But our community needs us now more than ever. Um, and so if we really want to make a difference and we really want to use our voice, the best way to do that is get involved with your community. You know, it sort of sounds like, you know, I mean, and, and doing all that, if you go like, oh, HRC rising, I mean, and it isn't like to me like, oh, rebuilding in these different communities. Listening to you talk, it's like HRC is helping our community rise mm-hmm. up and actually rise mm-hmm. to a level higher than what we've ever been because we've risen to a level, but we haven't risen to that level to where we've eliminated the threats to mm-hmm. our community where maybe we can get married, but we can still get fired, you know, and, right. or, and we can still get denied. So it sounds to me like rising is like, you know, we're rising up. Yeah. yeah. No more like, halfway up we're like right rising up and standing <laughs> up going all the you know that's right you know uh, yeah so so this is not this isn't just like a short-term program you have it sounds to me that uh there's a long-term goal in this so it's not yeah. just gonna be like okay well we've accomplished this bye you know right right uh-huh. yeah i think um you know like i said i think long-term engagement is um is necessary, and that's something that we're recognizing in a lot of these communities, um, which is why that you know we're focused on building um, long-term volunteer communities and strengthening our partnerships with local organizations um, and adding capacity where we can, and you know identifying the gaps in the community and, and helping to build um, solutions that'll address them. Mm-hmm. So, you're going to be around for a while. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. All right. And um, because I mean, you're you're part of of this the leadership. You're one of the volunteer leadership organizers. Do you guys come back together after you go out to different cities? Do you periodically like sort of come back together, talk about mm-hmm. what you're seeing, and share ideals? Oh, definitely. I think um, you know it's. It's always a golden moment when when um, our team is all together at the same time in the office. Um, mm-hmm. So and it, and you know we check in with each other regularly when we're on trips and kind of talk about um, you know the really cool projects we have going on in our communities um, and we get inspired um, from one another. You know, um, hearing about the events. Um, and activities going on in Wisconsin and Arizona and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, we kind of build on each other's ideas and think, oh, okay, well, you know, that sound, that project or that event in Pittsburgh sounds really cool. Maybe we can do it in Detroit. Um, or mm-hmm. maybe we can do that in Reno. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a really cool collaborative uh, team to work with. I'm, I'm really happy with our team. So if you're listening out there and you're not in one of these these key places that you've mentioned and you're going like, but wait a minute, I want to be part of HRC Rising. What can Mm -hmm. someone do if you're not 
in in one of those places or if you're you're in a city, if you're in Seattle and you say, well, you know, I could take a week off and, and go someplace and volunteer. How do they contact HRC Rising, you, mm-hmm. or, or in a city that they're close to, if they're mm-hmm. calling nationally and want to be involved? Yeah. Well, you know, HRC Rising is um, a 50-state uh, program. So even though we're focusing a lot of our efforts in these six states, there's a lot of work um, going on in every state. Um, so the best way to get involved is um, go to hrc.org and search your state. Um, and um, there will be a page where you can um, sign up to be a volunteer. You can find out about the local events happening in your state. Um, another great way is searching um, our um, Facebook pages for each state um, and finding one um, for your community. Um, and that's a great way to get connected with um, our volunteer communities um, and also reach our staff. And in Michigan, we have an office where mm-hmm. people can call. Can you give us that number where they can reach out to uh, Marisa? Um, yes. Let me just... <laughs> uh, <my laughs> I can be reached um, at my office number, and I can give you that, 202. Okay. Seven nine one eight six five nine, um, and Amritha's number um, is two four eight three seven six zero six two two. And for those in the Michigan area, that office is in the Affirmations Building. But I'd call because she—they've got her working. She's on the go a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, she's on the go. Well, you know. We're coming towards the end here, and I'm going to let you um, have the last say. But um, are you, how close is your family? Do you still get together and have those Sri Lankan meals and bond over family time? Your sisters and your mom? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, my um, my family actually I have one sister still in Texas. The rest of my family moved up to D.C. with me. I guess oh, they missed me. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You know, your yours is a, a great story. I mean, I think that yours is is an American story. I mean, if people want to talk about all this thing, but but especially there's so many people now that that the part of having been the daughter of a, of a single mother who encouraged you to go on to want to give back to your community, to being that different face in your home community and then going abroad and being really standing up to what, to, to really tell people what the dream we have for America is right now with the leadership, you know, it isn't quite what we want it to be, but that dream that we can have and be inspirational and go for, and that part about giving service. And I think that, when you really talk about what you're looking about, America, what you talk about, about being intersectional, about being able to bring your full and authentic self to you, to the table, which you are, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you're bringing so many parts. I mean, that's just like so important. And I'm glad that you're out there in the community because I think that there's a number of people, um, women, people who are queer, who might be a little closeted, who can look Mm -hmm. at you standing in your truth and say, like, hey, I can do that too. I can rise. So Mm -hmm. I think I want to thank you for being that person. 
Thank you. And HRC Rising, what do people need to know if you could give us, like, your elevator speech and Mm -hmm. go over once again how people can contact um, HRC, the organization, to find out what's going on in their city. Okay. Um, you know, now is not the time to, um, to sit back. Um, we have the midterms coming up, and we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, so the best thing you can do is go to hrc.org and search your state. And um, there are, there's a wealth of resources. Um, you can find out um, the events coming up in your state. You can find out how to get in touch with the local office. Um, you can find out what are the current protections in your area and um, what issues um, still need to be addressed in your area, um, whether it's um, you know, protections in public accommodations or protections in employment or um, protections uh, when it comes to um, health care. Um, and it's a great... Uh, way to find out what's going on in your area, make sure that you're educated, um, and get involved. And they, and they don't have to have a tuxedo or buy a $300 dinner ticket. <laughs> how, much is, how much is membership? Membership is a one-time $5 donation for your annual membership. Um, and the memberships are important because, A, it... Um, pays for all of the work that we're doing across the country. Um, But the other really important thing is that when you're invested in this organization, um, we can talk to you about our endorsements. Um, You uh, become part of, you know, an organization and a mission larger than yourself. Um, You know, we have millions of members and supporters, and that's why members of Congress listen to us, um, because they know that we are a voting block that matters. And are there any other ways that people can really get involved? Sure. We have the Equality Action Academy, which is a really cool online tool people can use um, to get trained on um, how to have um, you know, deep voter conversations, um, how to do a phone bank. Um, it's a really cool tool um, to learn how to um, you know, build on your um, activist skills. Um, so if you go to hrc.org and you search Equality Action Academy, you can, um, you can enter your um, name and email address and we'll um, sign you up for those um, online programs. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, stop it. Well, Rashika, thanks for talking with me today. I look forward to seeing you here in Michigan getting out the vote for this November's really important midterm elections. And let's get those pro-equality candidates in office. I want to thank today's guest, Rashika Pedras, volunteer leadership organizer with the Human Rights Campaign's HRC Rising Program. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual 
living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.